So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, we will be looking at this morning the account of Pilate, uh, Jesus before Pilate, and uh, we'll look at a number of verses related to this. It all kind of flows together with respect to the narrative. The title of this sermon is simply Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Pilate. So let me read uh, that account. Uh, We'll look at Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 11, and then I'll read all the way down to, uh, I'll read all the way down to verse 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was Being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. When we look at this account, we are looking at some of the final events in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is ministering upon the earth. And yet we look at this account for what it is. It is, in fact, God's decree, God's purpose for him to go to the cross. And God will use uh, the even wickedness of men to accomplish that feat without being personally responsible for the acts of those men. And yet being uh, able to judge the acts of those men because he is perfectly righteous. And in this, we see that the Lord is standing before Pilate. And the last time that we were together looking at this passage, we talked about some of the pragmatism, some of the things that Pilate did, uh, some of the ways in which he ruled his territory, Uh, Some of the ways in which he was in fact cowardly and at times spineless, but also ruthless. For he was a ruthless and violent man. And so he attained to that rulership uh, in the sense that 
he was here now judging and adjudicating a matter that was brought before him. And here the Lord stands before him and his question. He stands before him and his question. Jesus before Pilate. And this was certainly, and I'll mention this a few times, but this was certainly from the standpoint of the Roman governor, an act of appeasement. An act of appeasement. It was him who knew that judgment was certainly at the door and that he needed to render a judgment, but his main concern was to appease the people who stood before him. It was not righteousness. It was not truth. It was not justice. It was appeasement. But also on the other side of that, bringing Christ before Pilate did not signify that Jesus was somehow guilty of the false charges that were levied against him in the previous passage. And you'll see that even as they accuse him as he is before Pilate, they being the chief priests and the leaders of Israel, accuse him as he's standing before Pilate. And Pilate seems a bit confused because he's looking at a man who is not visibly guilty of anything unjust, a man who has not uh, done anything openly unrighteous, and certainly a man who is not guilty of the things that they're saying about him. And I want you, there's a particular uh, verse that I want you to keep at the forefront on either side of this as we look to this passage. That Pilate knew the whole time that Jesus was innocent of the charges. And he knew that the people had brought him to him for a specific purpose. Specifically in verse 18, it says it. For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. So Pilate knew that the leaders of Israel were envious of Christ. They were envious of the scope of his ministry. They were envious of his perfect righteousness which they could not attain to, but tried to attain to in their failed apostate system. And so they ended up with wickedness as they were aspiring to righteousness. They were envious of his fellowship with the true God of Israel. They were envious of the people responding to him and beginning to respond to him. They were envious of his truthfulness. So they were envious of Christ and his person. And so being envious of Christ, they sought to put him forward as one worthy of death on the false charge of blasphemy. So it shows us very plainly that Pilate is not a victim of circumstances. He knows what is going on. He is very much in tune and in step with the region with which he's governing, Judea. He knew that at worst, and not only did he know what was happening, but he knew that at worst, an innocent man stood before him. He knew that. But we know that a perfect, sinless God-man stood before him in our place. And so that is what we're looking at as we look to this text. But Pilate knew that he was innocent of the charges. And yet what Pilate does is, in, instead of letting him go free, he questions him. He questions him. And his question was very direct and specific. And it had everything to do with the quote-unquote charges that were levied against the Lord himself. He questions him. 
Because the main charge that they were charging with him is that he was saying he was the king of the Jews and he was indeed an imposter. That was essentially the charge. And him being the king of the Jews means that he is what? The Messiah. That he's the Messiah. That he's directly sent from God to atone for the sins of the people. And we know this because we know that that should have been their expectancy because if we look back to Old Testament passages such as 1 Samuel chapter 2. We know in Hannah's song, she unites the expectation of Messiah and the king to the fact that the king is going to atone for the sins of the people. So that was to be their expectation. There was to be no surprise. It wasn't simply to say that Jesus was a king. It was to say, it was to say that he is the king who is going to bear the sins of his people. But here what you have in them is that they rejected God, they rejected all the covenants, they rejected the one who fulfills all the covenants, and so they believed him to be a blasphemer. They rejected the prophets. And ultimately, you reject the God of Israel because you reject his son. But I'll tell you in this passage, and nowhere will you see it, it is fanciful, fanciful for people to say it, that somehow in this, God the Father has abandoned the son. That never takes place, not once in the events of the Gospels, and it certainly doesn't take place in this particular account. Because as we mentioned, all the way through, Jesus bears the divine pleasure of God the Father. And we'll see that even in the text related to the fact when he's on the cross, and he says, Eli, Eli, flamach sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll talk about those things. But as we look to this particular passage, and as we look to what is happening, Pilate asks him a question, knowing he's innocent. Knowing he's innocent. And the word choice that he uses is not by accident, for no words are wasted in the Bible, related to the original manuscripts, related to even the way I would say some things are translated. We have to look at them all. Uh, but because the Bible is written under divine inspiration, that the Divine author used human authors to convey God's truth, objective truth to man, and to convey God's redemptive plan. I say all that because even the way in which the question is asked shows that Pilate knows exactly who is standing before him. For in verse 11 he says, are you the king of the Jews? And when you look at this in the Greek construction, it's literally asked this way. You are the king of the Jews. It is a question in the positive. And it is why Jesus answers the way he does. He says, it is as you say. Or it's Jesus literally saying, you say. You say I'm the king of the Jews. And in saying he's the king of the Jews, Jesus doesn't back down. He's not trying to be invasive. He's trying to essentially say, I know who I am, but you're admitting by confession that you know who I am. And so he says, it is as you say. He affirms it. He affirms it. And I mentioned that he doesn't back down from the question and doesn't try to evade the question because he answers the question in the way that Pilate asked. Pilate asked in the positive Jesus answers in the positive. He doesn't say, oh no, I, I, I think you have me mistaken for someone else. He doesn't say, can you clarify the question, please? He says, the way you asked it is the way it's answered. 
You've made a positive identification of who I am. But Jesus did not, listen to this, Jesus did not give and bestow upon Pilate salvation. He did not affirm his confession as a salvific confession. It was simply a recognition, a positive identification. He identified him exactly correctly. And the chief priests and elders aimed to accuse him even more. So in the middle of this, there's this positive identification of who Jesus actually is. He is the king of the Jews. And understand that the whole time we've been walking through Matthew these last few years, that is essentially the theme of Matthew's gospel, to present Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. And I would say according to the Davidic covenant, also according to the Abrahamic covenant, but also to demonstrate by extension he is the king over the Gentiles whom are his elect. Kingdom. Kingdom. That is the focus of Matthew's gospel. Kingdom. So Jesus is saying you're absolutely correct. It is as you say. But they remained, uh, they remained accusatory toward Christ in verse 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. So while he's being questioned, he's also being accused. And he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer those accusations. But we can be certain, even looking at the pattern of what the chief priests and the elders have done up to this point in our text, we can be certain that at least, at minimum, the context of their statements were false accusations, disinformation, and instigation. That they were trying all these things to try to ramp up the process, to speed up the process so that they could, uh, so that they could bring about this execution on the basis of Jesus' uh, uh, charge against him that he committed blasphemy, which was a false charge. So they do this. They, they're there and they're there to create chaos. They're there to create disinformation. They're there to point people away from the fact that he is who Pilate asked him, uh, and essentially he identifies him correctly. But he is that very person. He is the king of the Jews. And so the charges were patently false. They were false all the way through. Everything that they were accusing him of is false. And so Jesus did not humor them by answering them or arguing with them. He didn't take time to interrupt Pilate to say, well, let me answer all these charges that are levied against me. Why? Because the testimony of the Father was clear. Jesus' very presence there at that moment testified that he was exactly who, uh, who Pilate asked him uh, to affirm. And so there was no need to argue with them because they were fools. They were fools. And so here, Jesus is even, by practice, appealing to proverbial wisdom, not arguing with a fool, not arguing with fools who are accusing him and blaspheming and trying to create disinformation about his person and about his purpose. And he's doing this in perfect wisdom. He's showing himself to be perfectly wise. And so in his perfect wisdom, he demonstrates that 
They are not only fools, but what they are saying is false. The chief priests and elders were not only saying things to Christ or to Pilate about Christ. They were not only saying things to Christ or to Pilate about Christ, but they were testifying against Christ with false charges. They were lying. And Pilate was flooded with what they were saying and then directed his words to Christ and not them. He was being flooded. He essentially was being overwhelmed with what their accusations were by nature. And they were doing that by design. For that is how, uh, that is one of Satan's strategies as he is the father of lies. And when he speaks, uh, when, he, when, he, uh, when he speaks lies, he's speaking his native tongue. But he often floods people with things. So it's not that people don't have enough information, it's that he floods them with information and twists it. He twists it. And he ramps up false charges against Christians. He is the what? Accuser of the brethren. So how much more is he going to accuse Christ? And so it's this volume of accusation that all of it's false, but it's consistently a barrage set before Pilate, to steer Pilate away from the fact that Christ just answered what was asked. It is as you say. It's very simple. I'm not a blasphemer. I'm the king of kings. I'm the king of the Jews. By extension, I'm the king of the Gentiles. By extension, I will one day come and crush the Roman Empire itself and everyone who tries to emulate it throughout the centuries. And so there's this flooding. And I'll tell you, in your walk with Christ, beware of being flooded. Beware of being flooded with not only disinformation, but information. You ought to take your cues from the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Not the spirit of the age. Not what's happening on the stage of the world. Because the world stage doesn't interpret what the Christian does. The Bible interprets what the Christian does along the lines of whatever is happening in the spirit of the age and on the world stage. And I say that because you see it here with Pilate. It was very simple. He asked the living Christ before him, face to face, who he was. Christ answered. Right there was Satan's seed causing confusion and steering him away from the very thing he asked and the very answer he received. And you see this consistent drawing away for Pilate, away from what Jesus said. Because he keeps going back and asking. Under the presumption that their lies were true because he, he wanted to appease them. But as I said, he did not back down from the question. He backed down from arguing with fools related to their false accusations. He backed down in this sense, and it was in his meekness, from entertaining anything that would cause Satan's testimony against him to be validated. He wanted to lend no credibility toward it. And sometimes what is permitted is not simply argumentation, but silence. Silence. Silence can also be a powerful weapon. We get that from ecclesiastical wisdom. There's a time to speak. And then there's a time not to, to paraphrase. And so we see that in Christ here. We see it. But they were flooding him 
And, and so he asked Christ. He directs his words to Christ in verse 13. He doesn't address them, he addressed Christ. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? That's why I say that they were flooding Pilate with things. They were saying all these things that were false testimony, blasphemies. And I would say that those many things, the reason I say what I'm saying is because I believe those many things have found themselves in the writing and commentary of the Mishnah, of the Talmud, of the Gemara, of the Quran, of Roman Catholicism's extra-biblical canons, of the word-faith movement, of secular humanism. All those flooding accusations are now trying to be canonized as religion. And those are just to name a few. But here, you see this flooding taking place. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But when we look at this from God's perspective, understand what is taking place concerning the divine theater of spiritual warfare. These men were on trial, not Christ. They were on trial. Because if we start from what Christ said and work our way down from there, you see that they're departing from God. That they are the ones who uh, bear within themselves God's wrath, not his divine pleasure. That they are the ones who are blaspheming. Because he, after being asked, are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is, it is as you say. So they're on trial. Christ was on trial only in as much as that our sins, the sins of the elect, were going to be placed on him, not in him. And so Christ is standing in our place as the substitute. That if all those accusations were flooding Pilate about us, then those things would be true and we would be worthy of not only natural death, but eternal death. But Christ in this moment, it says it about him in Isaiah 53. In this moment, he stood perfectly righteous and completely innocent in the face of his accusers. Perfectly righteous and completely innocent. We can only say that if we are in Christ. If we are hidden in him. If we are abiding in him. If we are joined to him. Then what people say about us is false. It is the accuser of the brethren working his accusations through the minds and mouths of men. And he's doing so before the throne day and night to accuse us. And yet you have one great high priest who intercedes on your behalf and says, they are my own. I purchased them. And if I am perfectly righteous, then I have credited my righteousness to them and have taken upon myself their sins. So he stood perfectly righteous and completely innocent in the face of his accusers. And understand this. This is why Jesus is silent here. He was not before them to prove his innocence. The so-called mock trial is over. They've already determined that he blasphemed and they already want to hand him over. And all those things are a lie. However... All those things are working toward God's redemptive plan to bring his sinless, spotless lamb to the cross without implicating Christ in any form of wickedness whatsoever. He was before them, listen to this, 
He was before them to bear our sins on his body. That's why he stood before Pilate. That's why he took upon himself their accusations. That's why he let them speak as they did, because they were aimed at you and I. And in standing in our place, he's absorbing everything we deserve, even the accusations. And he's a substitute on our behalf. So that you don't have to bear truthful accusations against you if indeed you are joined to Christ. So even the accusations and what would be the height of that is death. Death. And so here, he was before them in that way. Why? Because think about this. Apart from being joined to Christ, we could never escape these charges from the mouth of those accusers. As much as you and I probably look at this text, and we certainly have a righteous indignation against what the chief priests and elders have done to Christ, who gave that to you? Who gave you that righteous indignation? It was the one of whom this account is written. He gave that to you. But we could never escape these charges. Everything would be absolutely true. And so we look to Christ in this. That he was not here to prove his innocence. You know how he proved who he was? By answering Pilate the first time. Are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say. He's the Messiah and everything that implies. So he did not answer the charges regarding himself and he did not need to. He was to suffer. He was to suffer on our behalf as a substitute. And his substitutionary atonement, him being our substitute, was indeed vicarious. Was indeed vicarious. That is, what he did, he did on behalf of the elect. This is not one who stands before Pilate and things have gotten away from him. This is not one who stands before Pilate and it's just too many people saying too many things. It's, he does this willingly. He does this on our behalf. He did not need to answer them. Because any charges levied at him in this account are false. They're false. And it speaks not only to the atonement, but the specific fact that God was pleased to crush his son. Isaiah 53.10. And as I mentioned, he need not answer men because God is eternally pleased with him. So why answer men's accusations if God the Father, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is pleased with you? You don't need to answer them. And so here we see at no point had the Father abandoned his son. He hadn't abandoned his son. Because if that were the case, Jesus would speak of that abandonment here. So the accusations are flying and yet he is perfectly executing the will of the Father. It points to his deity. It points to his deity. That he is indeed God the Son. And the people will recognize that at the culmination of his crossword. But listen to this. There is no displeasure, and I keep mentioning that, because there is 
no defect in the lamb. And if any of these charges were true, and if any of these charges were corroborated or believable, our atonement is in vain. Everything is in vain. But praise be to God that they're not. Praise be to God that we're looking at the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. And that God the Father is, even in this account, eternally pleased with the Son. If he's pleased to crush him, he's pleased with him. Because that speaks of his nature. Not only his purpose, but his nature. His person. In verse 14 it says, And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. Because all of them were false. So the governor was quite amazed. Why? There's a couple of reasons. But one, when you typically are bringing a person to the end of their life and their death, and if they're innocent, they will presume their innocence. They will contend and plead for you not to kill them on the basis of their innocence. But it's not that Jesus is here to prove his innocence. He's here to demonstrate that you and I are not. And so he has to stand in our place to take upon himself our sins. Because those accusations flying at him are true about us. Whom he came to redeem. And so he's silent. Because he's executing the great will of the father. In the Greek the idea is that the governor was exceedingly amazed. Exceedingly amazed that Jesus did not answer. Because as I mentioned, Pilate is a violent man. He's killed men and have had men killed. And I'm sure, as one could look through the history of uh, even the way in which governments have suppressed people and killed them and destroyed them, uh, that there may have been a certain urgency in some of the killings. Because he wasn't only killing condemned prisoners, he was killing people who were not guilty of anything. Perhaps he had seen this before. Perhaps. The text doesn't say, but perhaps. And so it was amazing to him that this man who was handed over for envy, which he said, a man who was innocent of the charges, and later we'll find in a few verses that his wife even calls him a righteous man, calls Jesus a righteous man, that this man is not begging and pleading and groveling at his feet for his life. Let me explain something to you. A powerful thing that Jesus said about himself. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. So he laid his life down. Nobody took it. So he didn't need to beg for it. Because he laid it down. He laid it down. And he laid it down. I have to keep coming back. He laid it down on our behalf. They didn't take it from him. But Jesus did not devote any attention to what they charged to him because none of what they charged was true. And I would even go back to the garden. Jesus had resolved in this instance to do exactly what the Father had commended for him to do. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That divine Trinitarian council that came to perfect agreement 
And not simply in the generic sense, but with respect to specific events that were to take place on the horizon because God himself can see the future for what it is and decree what he will and accomplish what he will. It's not simply as the, uh, as the heretical open theist believes that God looks through the corridors of time and tries to figure out the possible outcomes and tries to remedy them. No, God had a plan in light of the future and in light of what would take place in the immediate events concerning the future. And it was particularly disclosed to Christ when Christ was in prayer with him, and Christ agreed with that will and agreed with the particular events. And so he remained silent. Things were happening as scheduled, as planned. Well, let me explain something to you. You want to know what's happening in the world before you? You want to know the schedules, the timetables, the decrees, why things are going on? Read the Bible. Look to eschatology. Look to the, the role of the church, the role of the believer, and you will not be aggravated or frustrated because things are happening right on schedule, as planned, just as God had ordered. And that doesn't mean you don't speak up, speak out, proclaim the truth of God's word, witness to those who are lost, but it does mean you need not be frazzled, anxious, depressed, uncertain, because you've not built a shaky foundation on this world, nor do you have a continuing city in this world. And in all that I say, that is not simply resolve, it's called faith. It's called faith. And it's called faithfulness. But in Christ, he initiates this. He initiates it. So we see that he's amazed. He's amazed. But Pilate was not a wise man. He was not a man who acted in a just way or righteous way in this account. Because what he appealed to, he appealed immediately to Roman tradition. He didn't appeal to a sense of justice. He appealed to Roman tradition, which took place in his regime, to resolve the issue of Jesus being brought before him. He digressed into pragmatism. Whatever works, that's the best result. Whatever works. And we see that. Because it says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. So after hearing all these things, he resorts to pragmatism. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And so here you see. It was during this time identified as the feast that the governor would release a prisoner. It was custom. This wasn't justice. And so this prisoner at the request of the multitudes should be traded for another prisoner. That was the custom. And so Pilate goes, aha, I have found a way out. I have found a way to keep my governorship. I have found a way to make it appear as though I can exonerate Christ without directly condemning him, and it makes it appear as though that I have solved the problem that the Jews can have what they want without me being complicit. And so he invokes this custom. He doesn't invoke the truth. 
of the matter. He invokes the custom. And it says this prisoner is at the request of the multitudes traded. He set before them two men, Jesus the Christ and Barabbas. And Barabbas was an infamous man. He was known for his crimes. And although Matthew's account is not explicit to the nature of his crimes, only that he had gained a notable reputation as a criminal, uh, Mark's account in chapter 15, verse 7, describes Barabbas as a murderer and an insurrectionist. And he had, in fact, committed murder during an uprising. And so he was someone who uh, attacked Rome and attacked people. And he had, in fact, committed murder during not only this uprising, but John's account uh, in chapter 18, verse 40, brands him as not only an insurrectionist, but a robber, a thief, a pillager. What one might think of as a, as a pirate or a bandit. One whose life is not spent only as a revolutionary, because we're not talking about a virtuous man, but as a thief as a murderer, as a pillager who steals to provide for his needs and resorts to violence to bankroll his revolutionary tactics. He was a violent man, this Barabbas. And the people knew who he was because he had gained this reputation. And in any other account, this is where you see a departure of even the the quote-unquote sons of Israel, although we know that they're not that, they're straying away from the very things Moses said to do in matters of adjudication. And they've done that first by bringing him before a Gentile ruler. But having said that, in any just society, his re-entry into that just society would have been a breach of justice, allowing this murderer, this robber, this this uh, insurrectionist back into society would have been a breach of justice. But not in this case because this was no longer a just society. Namely, not because of Barabbas, but because of Christ. But the people also noted in Mark's account, asked Pilate to keep his custom. It wasn't simply that Pilate came up with the idea. They invoked the idea before Pilate. They said to keep his custom before them as an option to release a prisoner in exchange for imprisoning another. They reminded Pilate, this is what ought to take place. So they pulled out all the stops. So we see only here pragmatism across the board, pragmatism. But yet from the perspective of God's redemptive plan and divine decree, we see the Lord using all these events, even the false constructs and the uh, illegitimate laws of men to accomplish his redemptive plan. And so all these events accomplish the salvation of his own. So Pilate set these men before the people in verse 17. But Pilate's appeal to his tradition did not absolve him from being guilty of indicting an innocent man, namely the God-man. His customs did not do that. And it says, as I mentioned, he knew that they handed him over through envy. Now, I want to step back into the grammatical implication of this very quickly. 
The language here that is used for that phrase in verse 18 is very stinging. In fact, the way the sentence is used, it signifies that Pilate was aware of their motives before they appeared to him. And I mention that because the use of the verb he knew is essentially in a tense in the Greek called the pluperfect. Or we would understand it as the perfect, which is completed action with ongoing results, were wound backwards. And so it's not only past action, but completed action in the past. And all that to say is this. He knew exactly why they brought Christ before him. He knew it. This governor knew what was happening in his region. He knew that they hated Christ. And he was complicit because he allowed it to take place in as much as God simply used events and people of human history to accomplish his purposes. And they are fully culpable. But all of his questioning and pretending to be shocked that Christ was before him was indeed a political game. Beware of men who pretend to be shocked. Beware of them. Watch them. Watch them. Not only in the recesses of government, but in the recess of modern evangelical judgments. People are not shocked. Often the people who pretend to be shocked are the ones orchestrating the events in their flesh. And yet God is certainly watching them under his watchful eye. But beware of those who pretend to be shocked. Because Pilate pretended to be shocked. And yet he knew. The language indicates that he knew. He was a pawn for the Jews. But more importantly than that, he was an instrument of the Lord to carry out what would be the work of the cross. He was an instrument. Not a salvific or saved instrument, but he was certainly an instrument. He was not a redeemed instrument, but he was a condemned one to be discarded and judged after the master's use. So Pilate's wife was sent to him to warn him. Because it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, reveling in this, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. What do we make of her? Because she was sent to warn him. But let me understand, uh, I'm sorry, let me help you understand uh, what is said here. Uh, this warning was not from a woman who served the living Christ. It was a premonition. It was a dream. It was something instinctive. And it says it in verse 19. She wasn't telling Pilate to let him go. Listen to me. She wasn't telling Pilate to let him go. She was telling Pilate to back out of the proceedings and leave these matters to the Jews. She wasn't presuming Christ's innocent, innocence as the God-man, confessing him to be Lord, God, and Savior. She was presuming it in as much as to say, this is not your concern. And Pilate echoes what she says, Further down in the text in verse 24 at the end of it. So she was not someone, I mean, I have heard it said in other contexts and in other sermons perhaps preached on this very passage that somehow we're to look at her as virtuous. No, she was a pragmatist as well. 
But she warned him. She warned him. And that's more than what was happening up to this point. She knew Christ was innocent, just as Pilate knew he was innocent. But Pilate forgot the question Christ answered in favor of self-preservation, fear of man, his own ruthlessness, his murderous and callous heart. But listen to this, knowing that Christ is innocent, but knowing he is innocent alone is not enough to save the condemned. Do you remember Judas? Judas remembered that Jesus was innocent. Judas remembered that he had betrayed innocent blood. And Judas went out and hanged himself. He didn't fall before the one whom he betrayed. And so you see this. But it's clear when you look at verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So you see how he keeps going back and forth. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. Why does he keep asking them if he knows he's innocent? This is a ruthless, cunning, callous, unrepentant, and pragmatic man. And yet, through all this, God's redemptive plan moves forward. Because this is what he uses to accomplish his will without being culpable for any of it. So it's clear here then, as we look to those couple of verses, that even related to governance in this matter, Pilate was not in charge. He keeps asking. He's not in charge. From a human level, the chief priests and the elders of the people were in charge. It is why Peter tells them that they betrayed innocent blood. It's why when he preaches to them in Acts, he tells them that the blood is on their hands and they say as much. That they're the ones who signed the document, so to speak, of judgment against Christ. They're the ones who signed the execution order. And they do so with an oath. And so from a human standpoint, they are the ones in charge. It's not simply Pilate makes a judgment and they agree. They are pushing and, press and pressuring Pilate to render a judgment by any means necessary uh, uh, based on the false charges against Christ that they erected on the charge of blasphemy. They persuaded the crowds that they should ask for Barabbas to release and destroy Jesus Christ. It was them. In fact, in John's account, Jesus reminded Pilate of this very thing. He says to him in John, uh, in John chapter 19, verse 12, essentially, you can make note of it, that Pilate had only derived authority from God, not self-attesting authority to do as he pleased against Christ. But also, Pilate's attempts to release Jesus was not based on a true sense of justice, holiness, and righteousness, but rather he feared Caesar and he feared the people. But Jesus also said, those who handed me over to you are guilty. He held them to more of an account than he did to Pilate, even though what Pilate did was certainly wicked. The crowd invoked in that particular context Caesar's name and authority against him if he were to release Jesus. They said, you are no friend of Caesar, which would have meant for not only his ouster, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't, um, 
uh, a certain uh, democratic process, he would have been killed. If he's useless to the empire, Caesar would have in all likelihood killed him. So he was also battling for his life in the sense of self-preservation. But the implication being what was already about to take place, that the people would riot against Pilate and essentially heighten the need for Caesar to replace Pilate. Pilate was not going to retire and write a book. Pilate was going to be killed if he were, uh, if he were uh, removed by Caesar. Because he would have been culpable for his actions against the empire for allowing a riot to take place in his prefect. Why do I say this? Because the Roman Empire was ruthless. We see it toward the end of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, to the end of the New Testament, where they begin to murder the Christians. And even throughout the annals of history and church history. But they're ruthless. So one can be sure that their threat against Pilate was true. That if Pilate had allowed a full-scale riot in his incompetence, and if it would have occurred, he would have incurred the wrath of Caesar. And as I mentioned, it could cost him his life. But once the people chose Barabbas, and they chose his release in verse 21, once they do that, Pilate asked, what should they do with Jesus? Now, if Pilate's a righteous man, he would have kneeled before Jesus as the perfect Holy One related to the atonement and offered, his, and offered himself to be crucified with him. A righteous ruler would have, however, released him. But in play beyond all this is as I continue to mention to you, and we'll mention it all the way to the end of the gospel. This is God's redemptive plan. Christ had to die on the cross for sinners. But everyone who had a wicked uh, part to play in this are judged. They're judged. So they choose Barabbas. And understand something. When they make that choice, you see that Pilate essentially, after he asked the question, you know, what, what, why, what evil has he done? They keep shouting all the more, flooding him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but look at this in verse 24, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. They say, and all the people said, uh, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Here's the thing. Pilate did not wash his hands as a righteous man. The act meant nothing in the way of righteousness. It meant nothing. For to be righteous, Pilate needed to confess and repent of his sins before Christ and have the righteousness of Christ credited to his account. And then Pilate's sins placed on Christ. That's how he's uh, essentially deemed righteous. But Pilate did none of these things. He merely surveyed the crowd and washed his hands to keep his governance. Verses 22 to 24. The crowd became more thirsty for blood and more murderous in their hearts at his questioning before them. And he saw that this was headed toward a riot. Doesn't make him commendable or righteous. Because what he does in the face of all this is he presumes his own innocence. You're not reading something of a man who is righteous and says 
truthful things about himself. He presumes falsely his own innocence. While being very much guilty of all the things that we have discussed so far. And it's important to note the nature of salvation related even as we discuss the lack of salvation which Pilate had. That man cannot commend himself to God. Man cannot presume his own innocence to God as a means to be reconciled to God. All Pilate did was presume his innocence toward the crowd. You can be guilty of something and stand before a multitude and say, I'm innocent. And based on your, effect, uh, your effectiveness and PR and personality cultism and everything else, they'll believe you. But that doesn't mean you're innocent. God determines if a person who is guilty will be credited the righteousness of Christ to be deemed righteous. Because all are guilty. So just because he said he was innocent doesn't mean that he was. For his next act, although certainly in step with God's ultimate will, was not born from his motive to do what was right in the sight of God. Perhaps it was to do what was right in the sight of his wife, in the sight of Caesar, even the crowds. But none of these things is what frees man from eternal punishment. And that is what we are concerned with. Not simply doing the right thing, but doing the righteous thing and being righteous before God. And why do I say that? Understand the climate with which you live today. And I'll give it to you in the historical context. His wife, Caesar, and the crowds were not the ones who needed to be appeased. None of them could satisfy God's wrath against them. Incurring their wrath meant nothing if he incurred God's wrath. Caesar's wrath is minuscule, non-existent compared to, to, uh, to God's wrath. And in verse 25, the people heighten their wickedness with an oath. And they do so by saying that his blood shall be on us and on our children. And that is true. For those who did not repent, for those who had their part in it and continued down that path of wickedness, that is true. That is true. That is not the blood of atonement that they are washed in. It is the blood that we see in Revelation 19. The blood of conquest that they will be bathed in. The blood of destruction. And listen to this. In Acts 3.14, we have been studying Acts. Later, Peter would point many of them. This is the blessing. This is the mercy of God. Later, Peter would point many of them to this moment. He would point them to this exact moment. Particularly in Acts chapter 3. As a means for their wide-scale repentance. And many of them repent. But here, they wanted Jesus dead and Pilate obliged. Pilate did not wash his hands that were dirty from this bloodlust of injustice. He didn't. We see it in the act that followed. Instead, he handed Jesus over to be publicly whipped and scourged and ultimately crucified. And so in that, he takes our place if we are indeed joined to him. Let's pray.